permission given to me by Woody Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and John Kahn, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my music heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway, this is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk 1210, we are full-on extraterrestrial radio streaming worldwide. Please go to powertalk1210.com, download the free app. It's the wave of the future. Put it on your iPhone and stream away. Listen to all of our live local shows, including Solomon on Blast and the Jake Feinberg Show. And we are honored to have you as part of the program today. And without further ado, I wanted to bring in uh, one of the greatest poets in my lifetime um, and a guy who has uh, provided a lot of inspiration for my generation and others, speaking the truth and playing really, really funky, soulful piano and flute. Brian Jackson, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, Jake. um, It's a pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure, man. It's so great to connect with you, brother. You know, um, I, I, you know, I'm very much into the idea of uh, music and magic. There's only two letters that separate the two. And I wanted you to talk a little bit to the audience about um, a story that was conveyed to you um, either by your, um, your teacher or your mom or, your, uh, or your, your family about the spirits that came before you uh, that have come before all of us and that will be here long after we're here and the power of the, sp- the spiritual quality of music when you, um, if you could talk about a, a seminal moment in your early life when that occurred to you. Well, I grew up listening to jazz all in my house. There was nothing, nothing but jazz all the time, with the exception of the occasional um, break for some, some, maybe some Bach or, or Brahms, Mendelssohn or, um, or the like. But... Uh, I don't know if I actually realized it that early on that what I, I was being done, what was being done to me was that I was being inundated with uh, with tradition. Um, it's something that I probably the thing about that is that you it's something that you're usually not taught verbally, but it's something that I think it has to grow on you. You have to understand uh, at some point by being taught, by being shown rather. And so what happened to me was that after having been immersed in so much in so much tradition and, and so much music, I just began to understand, you know, what it was what it was about. 
Um, can you could you specify uh, the? I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, the kind of jazz that was being played for you was, I mean, it was a Duke Ellington kind of stuff, and and oh, go okay. ahead. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, it started. Let me see. Well, in the fifties. My folks were like full on into, they had passed the swing era, you know, and they, they were like full on into bebop. So, you know, in my house, I, I could be listening to, um, to, to Max Roach and, and Clifford Brown or the next moment um, to um, Sarah Vaughn, Ahmad Jamal, uh, you know, Miles. This, is, this was the kind of stuff that was prevalent in my, in my household. Um, and I guess maybe even if I think about it, now that, now that I think about it, the moment I, that I realized that this was all part of one kind of big tree um, and that the roots were, were deep and they went back across the sea to Africa was when I started to understand the concept of the griot. And this is something that Gil and I used to, used to talk about all the time because we were always anxious to, to identify um, with our country, you know, with, with, our, with our origin. Being separated from, from our, our history of ourselves here in America was, was traumatic, and it was something that we, we had wished to, I don't know, something that we had wished to, to rectify and maybe understand a little bit about. And as we began to um, investigate and learn about some of the traditions of, um, of West African culture, we, we came upon this con- concept of the, of the griot. And I think it kind of all made sense at that point. Can you, uh, for the lay per- I mean, this is so awesome. Uh, can, for the lay person out there listening all over the world, can you, can you talk about the customs of West Africa, specifically the griot, what was appealing to you about it, and how you incorporated it into your early music? You know, the griot was kind of a, was kind of a troubadour, but the kind of but the kind of troubadour that spoke about things that were going on in the community, um, because ancient African culture was more or less um, a, a spoken culture. Uh, the the lessons that were learned were learned through music and dance and and poetry, and so it was the griot's job to hold on to the stories. Um, and the histories of that particular that, that particular nation, you know, of that particular um, group of of families, um, and it was a it was a tradition that went that was passed on from generation to generation. So, if you were born the child of a griot, you too were going to be a griot, <laughs> and all of the things that had to be said, and all the all of the history, and all of the. Um, the, the the life and the cultures and the, the the morals the morality and the um, the the customs of the people were going to be enclosed uh, within the songs that the griot the young griot had to learn. Um, he also was responsible for telling what was going on at the time, you know, for for breaking it down in in a song. What's happening around us right now? There'd be a song about that, and that's what actually that's what appealed to us the most, because we kind of saw ourselves as as serving that function in some way. Or I, I dig. No, I totally, totally dig. Going back to your folks, though, uh, did they? I, I just want to talk to you about the first time you went to 
uh, South Africa. Did you go as a child, or or did, when did you go with 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 the band? I didn't go until 1998. Really? So, and it was actually the first time that I had ever set foot in Africa, and having you know it probably had more significance to me as a as a man in my in my 40s or as it was as, as it would have been uh, as it would have been if I had gone earlier because I had learned so much more you know about the history of South Africa and the origins of uh, of the human race uh, having having a lot of ties in in South Africa so when I got there the first thing I did was I got on my knees and I kissed the ground. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, love I love it. I love it, man. I think you're right in the sense that uh, it had more of an impact. I, it's funny because you were writing about it prolifically in you know 30 years prior, but maybe it, yeah. w- it would not have had the same kind of. But I want to go back to this this fam this tree you talked about. I mean, especially as it relates to the jazz. I mean, after the swing era into bebop, how were those cats? I mean, I, I was born in '78. I mean, I would have loved to have been uh, part of that bebop scene. But how were those guys making sense of the family tree to Brian Jackson? Well, you know, a lot of the a lot of the beep, especially bebop, bebop in in my estimation was kind of the the a revolution it was a revolutionary music um bebop was saying to me at least what bebop spoke to me was that we are going to break all the norms you know we are we're going to break out of all the um all of the 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 icons of, of the of the past and we're going to move we're going to move past them you know we're going to use what is best from from them but we are going to develop them into something that speaks that speaks to us and that, that allows us to express ourselves as, as young musicians. Um, and so, when I, you know, that, that to me was the, was the crux of bebop, was the core of bebop. And from there, uh, so many different other types of jazz um, evolved, but they were all, at that point, I think they were all about moving consciousness forward. Could you talk about the specifically the the rhythms of bebop? Uh, you know, I, I I've I connected a while ago with Big Black, the conga player, mm. and mm-hmm. you know, you know, and he's a, a dear friend, and I I love him a lot, and 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 you know, he played with Dizzy, uh, was mm-hmm. one of the first conga players to play bebop. You know, and I wanted That's you right. to, wanted you to talk about the rhythms, because uh, you talk about these you know this revolutionary music, and I and I and I get it, but to specifically talk about the rhythms of Afro-American music in the forties and the swing era versus how it changed with bebop. Okay. So, you know, the rhythm in particular of, uh, the, the, the standard jazz, you know, jazz rhythm that a drummer will play on the cymbals. Um, as you know, most jazz, most jazz is in four, four time, mm-hmm. but the, the underlying, the underlying rhythm of, of jazz, of, of the rig, of the standard swing jazz rhythm is six, eight. And this is so African that it's, you know, <laughs> that it, it's, it's really hard to, to dissociate, um, jazz from, from African jazz rhythms, from African rhythms in, in that way. Um, and I, when I started to really understand that was when I started to listening, listen to the djembe drumming of, uh, you know, of West Africa, of Senegal, 
um, it's there. The underlying the underlying six eight beat is transformed into a into a four four beat. I don't you know I'm not trying to get no. I this is, keep going. But, this is absolutely <laughs> listen. You have no idea. Listen, you know this is what I'm about. This is exactly mm-hmm. what I'm. A, keep going, man. It does. It, you're 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 you're, you're, you're 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 weaving gold right now, whether you know it or not. So just keep going. <laughs> so this is this is what I found, and you know, I, I I it was really difficult to get away to get away from it. And speaking about South Africa, once I got to South Africa, one of the one of the things that that really knocked me out is how they treat six eight. So there, here was my lesson in free jazz, if you will, I guess, or you know, <laughs> polyrhythm. Right. Because as I was listening to these guys, they were doing a lot of a lot of South African jazz musicians. Of course, uh, that the core, one of the core rhythms of of South African music is six eight. And so as I was listening to these six eight, and I thought, hey, I know six eight. <laughs> you know, I'm 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 all about it. And when I hear when I heard these guys playing it. At some point, I just completely lost where the one was. <laughs> right, right. I had no idea where the one was. You know, I was, and I was. It, I went back to them after the show, you know, and I said, "Okay, that was really beautiful." But let me. I just have to ask you something. You know, I said, "Where? How do you guys? How do you guys ever? How are you able to to keep the one? I mean, you know, where do you? How do you keep finding? How do you find the one?" And like the bass player laughed at me and he said, we don't. <laughs> he, said, he said, we don't. He said, we just let it go where it goes. We'll catch it. It'll catch us. It'll catch us. Can you, yeah. can, I mean, that, I just, I, I, it's amazing how infectious that became in the, uh, you know, with Western psychedelic uh, jam bands because uh, it's like a, it, any note can be the one, and this is the kind of exactly. I don't like people getting so hung up on the on always knowing where the one is. I mean, there's such an emphasis on that. Here it is. We'll catch it, but somehow we'll catch it. But you have to have your chops together because the truth is, it would just be a mess if you didn't yeah. know what you were doing. I mean, you have to be gifted. But it was a mind blower for you. It really was. It, it was, was a mind blow. It was a mind blow because I figured, okay, you know what? It's me. But it's not me, and if I were, if, you know, if I if I had been up there, and if I had been up there playing it, somebody would could have said that to me, and I would have said the same thing. It's just that having been an observer, you know, I I it, it was just it was really it was a mind it was a mind blow because I mean it's happened to me a gazillion times, and I, I never think about it in those terms. I always thought I always thought of well, okay, I just screwed up, you know, I can't find it anymore. <laughs> but what they taught me is that you you didn't screw up and you didn't lose it. You know, it's there. It's doing its thing. It'll just come back around again. It'll I, come I, back. Yeah. It'll come back to you. As a non-musician, I'm, I get off on this as much as I mean. I, I just think I'll talk to everybody about this from now on. I think it's the most intoxicating <laughs> thing. But but I, when you, I would love to hear some of the answers. Well, I, I mean, but, but 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 people will say. I mean, I, and I've just sort of started to un, un, unpack all this, but they'll say, you know, whoever they, wherever, whether it was a, a, a audio and, and visual experience, like when you saw in Senegal, or somebody who was actually playing with somebody else, they all say, this is the player I was before that, and this is the player I am now. I mean, did, it fundamentally wow. changes you as a musician as well, I think. I mean, that's once, once you realize that it's not you, that it's just part of the groove. You know, I think that's really... Absolutely. Um, you know, but uh, Brian, you know... 
I I wanted to ask you about part of my show is 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 is, is steeped in sociology and 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 uh, really I started my show uh, maybe five five years ago uh, because I, I I'm a huge huge fan of Barack Obama and I think that um, you know uh, he's been everybody's uh, you know favorite person to take cheap shots at but I think he's done a, an incredible job. Uh, and I yeah. really respect him a lot. And I was even appalled five years ago at how he was being treated. Um, and it, to me, it just came down to um, a cultural bias. Other people would. Refer Absolutely. To, and, 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 you know, I talked to Richard Davis. I, so I started I, I veered off when I started my show. I was doing stuff on education and immigration, stuff that's related to southern Arizona. And it just kind of got soulless really quickly. And I started to. Uh, reach into these vinyl records I had and pull out these heroes of mine, uh, and I started to interview oh, all man. these all these cats. and And Richard Davis talked about uh, something called well, he, he referred to a covert versus overt racism, and the idea that <clears throat> in today's society things are much more covert as opposed to. In the, and I want you to talk about it as somebody who grew up in Bed Stuy and in New York. Um, you had to face uh, a lot of over racism, cultural bias. I wanted you to talk about uh, how you specifically handled it, and um, also your thoughts on Barack Obama as as his le his legacy. How you view him as a president as well, if you're proud of him. Okay, so let me let me first uh, talk about one thing that um, my grandparents used to say used to say to me. Um, even though I'm a Third generation. I'm like a third generation New Yorker. Um, my parents, my grandparents, grew part part of the time were lived in uh, lived in the South before they, you know, before they migrated to um, uh, uh, Harlem. And uh, I used to, we used to have conversations about that covert and overt racism that you that you refer to and. They always seem to, at the end of the conversation, someone would always blurt out, you know what, in some ways I prefer living in the South. And, you know, right. you know, everybody would say, and everybody would understand what that means. And what it means is that, you know, sometimes it's better for somebody to stand in front of you with a knife, you know, right. with a sneer on their face, you know, and smile at you. And as soon as you pass by, turn around and stab you in your back. That's right. It's like, you know, I'd rather know, I'd rather know how you feel. I'd rather know, I'd rather you be honest with me about, you know, about where we are in our relationship, you know, than to make me feel that everything, everything is cool. And now I can't understand why everything is going wrong in my life whenever I deal with you. Hmm. Wow. That's powerful stuff. I mean, and, and I, um, I mean, I remember Richard talking about, uh, as a bass player, uh, trying out for classical uh, symphonies, and uh, you know they they'd uh, they'd have a, a drape, uh, you know, so you couldn't see. Um, wow. You know who the musician was. Uh, you couldn't see what color they were, but yet, uh, even though he was head and shoulders above everybody else, he never got a call back. Anyway, so much. I guess what you're saying is the east coast in the east eastern part, north northwest, uh, uh, Midwest. It's more yeah. covert, whereas in the South they wear it on their sleeve like a badge of honor, and they'll and they'll, they'll get in your face. About it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, you know, I grew up. Um, I, I, let me see. I was in the fourth grade when they started busing. Right. Okay, and 
they bust me across town. I was living in Crown Heights. I was already living in a like um, a mostly Jewish neighborhood, and then they bust me across town to a mostly Jewish neighbor to another mostly Jewish neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what the benefit was there. <laughs> right. But um, <laughs> but uh, I, I do I do know that the school, the, even though the the school was becoming was was, was changing the, where I where I lived in Crown Heights. Um, the school that I went to was becoming more culturally diverse. Um, and that was cool. I mean, you know, I was happy with that. I didn't really need to go anywhere for, for that, although the facilities might have been better. I'm not sure. But anyway, they bust me across the, across the, 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 the borough to um, Brooklyn Heights. I'm sorry, not Brooklyn Heights, to uh, Ditmas Park. Okay. And so... I went to. I spent my elementary, most of my elementary school um, years in Didmus Park. Um, do, did I feel unwelcome? Yeah, I did. I did because you know there was just a, there was a busload of us, and and we would get out, and uh, it was a it was a strange environment for us to for us to be in. Uh, I felt mostly comfortable there. You know, to be honest, but I know that whenever there was conflict, and as you always, when when you're a kid, you know you're always going to have conflict with um, with some other kids. You're always going to have a problem with somebody down the down the line. And as soon as that con, as soon as you you got into a problem with with one of the white kids, then that's when the race that's when the race thing would always come up. Can you, what do you mean by it would be brought up? I mean, within the verbal altercation? Or yeah, the, yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, it's just like, yeah, well, I'm, you know, I don't like you anyway, you know, you, you know, you, you nigger, you know, or, right. you know, whatever. That's when, you know, or even if the, that word wasn't used, it was always, there was always some type of a slur, um, a racial, a racial slur to let you know that, you know, okay, well, I don't like you. And I also don't like the fact that you're black. <laughs> you know, that was that was the message that, that that was the message. And even though it didn't happen that much, it happened enough to make me feel like, OK, you know what? This is not really my uh, this is not my <laughs> so my much area. so much for bus so much for busing. <laughs> I'll tell you. Unbelievable. But, yeah. The, the kids from um, from Holy Innocence High School, which was a, a boys uh, Catholic school, used to come specifically like to fight us. You know the kids in the bus. Oh my God, Jesus! Yeah, he's <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the, like they're you know like a kind of you know Brooklyn lynch party you know. But I guess it all it all stopped when the, one of the bad kids on the bus stabbed um, the leader of the, their little gang with a with a compass. Yeah, that you know, that, that, was, that, was, that right out of the West Side Story thing. I mean, that, it's yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that put it. And, 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 yeah. Go ahead. It seemed like there was a lot more acceptance after that. You know, I don't. I'm not. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, I don't. <laughs> I don't condone violence. I just want to say. No, know? no, no. I mean, it, 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 unfortunately, but, I, I just, I, you know, I guess. Um, I also want to know. I mean, I am not a practicing. Uh, my, I have a very Jewish name, but uh, I, I'm not a practicing Jew, and I was never bar mitzvah or anything like that. But did you feel that the were Jewish people? fake to you your face were they covert uh or uh, i mean or were they were they very welcoming i mean the jewish people have been oppressed obviously as well but i'm just curious exactly. if you could um 
uh, no, I never, yeah. I, I really didn't, you know, I, I didn't feel that. I mean, you know, where, where I would feel it, where you would feel that tension would be when it came to real estate. <laughs> sure, sure, you know, when sure. It came to, when it came to where, where you actually, <laughs> I can, I did, I can totally where see you it. actually live. Right, 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 right. But I aside, did. you know, yeah. aside from that, two kids, a Jewish kid, a black kid, you know, it was fine. Right, right. If you were moving, if you were yeah. moving in next door, then it would get a little tense. Yeah. yeah. Then it'd be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Talking to Brian Jackson here on the Jake Feinberg show, uh, live here on power talk, 1210. Um, if you could, I couldn't ask a better person because you were one of the main cats that you're right in there with Donnie Hathaway and Curtis Mayfield. Um, and wow, in the sense of you mean, you mean, you mean I was there? No, no, I want to, I want to, I want to say no. I was present. Well, no, you, 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 your, your messages, your messages might have been slightly different, but you were from. Yeah. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is these communities. The uh, the ghettos, if you want to call them that, or whatever they were, whatever the neighborhoods, the messages coming out of the Afro American neighborhoods that were being spoken by Marvin Gaye, who was a little bit ahead of that, but you know Curtis and 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 Gil Scott and Brian Jackson and Donnie and uh, and I don't want to leave any, I'm going to leave people out, obviously, but it was love. It was too many. It was love. I mean, it was love. It was it was like we are all brothers. Like it was, it was, it was truth, but it was very powerful healing music as opposed to this, what's, what's become of rap music or hip hop, which is just really angry. And I'm I'm not, I'm not making a statement. I'm really glad you said that. I just want you to say, tell me as, explain to the audience around the world, because you'll see these little generalizations or stereotypes, but how come the messages, albeit in a more overt racist society have become that much more angry and volatile in a more covert racist society. Wow. That's interesting, you know, because one of the things that you mentioned, one of the things that you just touched upon is something that I would like to, would, would like to clarify about my music. Okay. Because a lot of people then and some even now will say that Gil was an angry poet, you know, an angry black poet, and that our music was very um, uh, political and and uh, um, uh, D- divisive, divisive, right? Divisive, well, yeah. yeah, divisive, and you know, and and just just full of uh, of anger, almost as though you know, almost as though we we sat around all day like with frowns on our faces, and you know, just thought about ah, you know, we're gonna write this song, and you know, we're just gonna we're just gonna downgrade everybody, you know, we're just gonna call everybody a bunch of names, you know, and, <laughs> and show people, you know, that everybody should be hated, you know, and and we just felt like that if that is not the the legacy that that I would like us. I would like us to have because I, I did say at one point, and Gil used to say this too, that when we had the option, when we had the choice of writing songs, that we just decided that we weren't going to write songs about "Ooh, baby, I love you," you know, "Ooh, baby, let me get into your pants," and this kind of thing, Absolutely. because there was already a, there was already enough of that. We weren't the ones who were going to write some more love songs. But you know, the funny thing, the ironic thing about it is, when I listen to our music now, they are love songs, man. I couldn't. Agree, I couldn't agree. I, well, I think it's just so beautifully put. Plus, I mean, it, it, I mean, I, I mean, from looking at it from from my my optics, it's like a lot of the stuff you're. T- we'll listen to a track in a little while. I mean, it's it's what happened. It's the, it's truth. It's stories. It's not. 
it's not made up stuff. You know, I mean, it's yeah. it, it's real events. But exactly. I mean, some of the some of the songs, your daddy loves you. I mean, exactly. Listen, man. I mean, exactly. as a father, you have no idea as a as a father of two young daughters. I, that that's one of the most touching, beautiful, lilting songs in the world. I mean, if anything, your music just was just like the funkiest, soulful music of all time. But I don't know. Thank I mean, you. that well, and, and so I, you and know, also, yeah. Go ahead. The song you just played. The song that you played at the beginning of the, of Offering, the show, yeah. Offering, yeah, sure. another, another example, another example. You know, it was all about opening ourselves up, opening, opening up our spirits so that we can, we can have some type of a, of a communion. And particularly our shows were, were all about that. You know, it was about having an, a, a, mutual, a mutual experience, actually a communion. Um, so that we could we could all kind of because this is the thing this was the, this was the thing that was dividing us, and there are very few things in the world that can unite people like music. And so we were about healing, man. You know, and that that we weren't about we weren't about hatred and, and anger. Well, I mean, and that's I, what I just, I'm seeing. Like I, I like. I'm seeing people strap bombs to themselves and go into mosques and blow people up and dip people. Yeah. And, and yet you're offering, you're, you, you say we have something to offer you. It's music. It's a That's spiritual it. community. Can you, can you talk about a, a transcendent moment on the bandstand when you can, when you saw this power of music, the unity power of music? I, I think it's just the, the, spe, the, the specificity of this is important because I mean, most of my generation and future, obviously my kids, they're, they're, they're used to a whole different entertainment <laughs> system with a whole bunch of stimuli that has nothing to do with why you're actually there. So I, I really would just okay. love you to talk about some kind of experience with Gil and that band when that spiritual connect, communion occurred. It happened every night, man. <laughs> that, that's insane. Yeah, I, I knew you were going to say, yeah, I know. It happened every damn night. Yeah, I can't, I can't even specify one because it happened every time we got together to play music. And it, not only did it happen among us, the musicians, but it happened among everyone who was present. Absolutely. No, that's what I'm, I mean, I, I, to me, that's like, a decade almost worth of of getting off every, yeah. of having that kind of communion what was your what, going back to did you get to see coltrane live oh man i didn't get a chance to see coltrane i got a chance to see miles um when i was like 16 my um <laughs> my my father's best friend took me and my boy ronaldo who played um who played trumpet to to go see miles at the at the Carnet Club in uh, in in Brooklyn on Franklin Avenue, and uh, I was sitting maybe I had to be sitting maybe about oh ten feet maybe at the most sitting <laughs> like I was in the front row. There was hardly there was hardly anybody there, and um, it was Miles and Wayne Shorter and and um, um, Chick was uh, Chick Career was on was on piano. Uh, Dave, Dave Holland on 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 bass and Jack DeJunet on drums, oh, wow. and so a... yeah, <laughs> and it was like right. I think it was kind of like right around the period that they had released uh, Nefertiti, yeah, Miles in the Sky, absolutely, Miles in the Sky. So um, we were all sitting, we were all there, and look, you know how Miles always likes to likes to do these little musical quotes. 
you know, and it's that's that's his, a lot of musicians do that. You know, I think it's I think it's something that actually really probably is really took hold in the in the in the bebop era. But I know that even swing you know swing guys used to do that. But it was something that Miles used to love to do was like to quote other other pieces musically in his solos. And almost every time he did it, my boy Ronaldo and I would laugh. You know, because it's like a musical, it's, music, it's kind of a musical joke, you know, and we would, and we would laugh. And <laughs> I remember at one point, you know, we said, these two 16-year-olds, first of all, what the hell are we doing in there? You know what I mean? <laughs> and I, I remember one point, you know, Miles was, was like oh, standing off the side of the stage and somebody else was soloing. And he, he started, you know, all of a sudden, he just, he, I looked up and he was like staring right at us. Oh, man. You know? I love, I love. <laughs> and I think he was just like, I could see in his mind him thinking, who the hell are these kids? You know? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but I mean, but I mean, I know, I know for a fact, like, uh, even in San Francisco, they had something called the Peanut Gallery, where like you know, cats your age at that time could go in. You could sit behind a rope wire, have a coke, order a coke, you know, as long as you nice. weren't drinking alcohol. But you could go nice. in and, and, and access it. But um, can you this musical quoting? You said it. You you you're pretty convinced it came out of the swing era, but it was very prevalent in, in the bebop era. Um, yeah. Like, do, do you know? Like, was was Miles quoting? Um, like like Broadway tunes, what would, like what was something that you remember him quoting at that time, like in the middle of some sort of frenzied jam? Yeah, yeah, there was I, there was this one when he always used to quote. I can't was that. I can't remember, but there were so many of them, and they all used to do it. Wayne used to do it. Chick used to do it. I mean, they would quote. They would quote classical pieces. They would they would quote other other jazz songs. They would quote nursery rhymes. You know, whatever whatever it is that came to their their mind, they would they would it would just come to them and it would somehow it would always it would just always fit in to whatever they were doing and unless you were really really paying attention you would you would even miss it i dig that and i'm I, sure i'm sure i missed it i'm sure i missed it more times than i caught it i, I mean i i only asked about train because when i interviewed jimmy cobb cobb was playing with 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 john um uh in the early 60s kind of like when he was be yes. beginning when he was yeah that was the miles there yeah like yeah. The, like getting getting into very modal mu um you know trans like doing all these thesauruses of rhythms and scale all this craziness and nicholas nicholas slaninsky the book yeah right and 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 he i mean jimmy said that 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 women in the audience would get up when train was was going they're like make him stop make him stop playing this is and and then yeah. and then you had like white cats journalists writing and calling it hate music it's crap yeah, yeah it's crap and that was another one that was another one they always used to call miles the angry tenor you know are you i mean not miles um um cold train they always used to say you know cold cold train was one of those angry tenors like him and and sonny rollins you know i think they were and um who else there was one more chef. I think they were all they were all considered angry tenors. What the hell? I mean, they're expressing their their stories and their feelings and their emotions. Somehow that makes them angry. Yet, yet it's. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's part of it though. Um, do you remember the like there was uh, the Chicago? Uh, there were these. Well, I guess it's a larger question about really African American journalists and media 
paying attention to its own cultural heritage to push back against some of this 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 um, you know garbage. Uh, were were there were, uh, like I guess my question is were there cats hip were there were there journalists that used to give you and Gil good publicity in the in the in the in the local rags? I remember talking to Ron Carter and he would talk about the the Pittsburgh Courier or the Chicago Navigator. There were like, these black sort of um, you know publications that would highlight some of this incredible music. Uh, did, did you did you have any friendly journalists that used to really uh, promote your music? <laughs> not that I. <laughs> <laughs> oh not man, that dude. <laughs> that's unbelievable! No. Unbelievable. No, I mean, no. You know, like Robert Christgau was very was very kind to us. You know, he who, was, who was he? Who he was, was that guy? Robert Christgau wrote for uh, for Rolling Stone. Okay. And I, I, you know, in in retrospect, having looked at some of those some of those reviews, it seemed like he he kind of got it in in a way. Um, but I think a lot of people didn't consider it serious, uh, uh, you know, because because of the fact that we we were accepted kind of in the in in the in the pop genre. I mean, it was very strange to see how we how our music was was categorized. Um, you you couldn't. Part of the reason we, we might have sold a lot more records if, if people had known where to find us in the record store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could you could go to in some places we were in the pop section, in some places we were in the rock section, other places we were you know we were in the jazz section, or, and then some other places we were in the R and B section. So nobody could actually. I, I really you, that was one of the actually that was one of the triumphs to me of of our music the fact that nobody actually knew how to categorize well and actually that's that's really what i mean jazz truthfully is a blending of all music so i mean it's kind of um it's a tribute and then like the duke ellington school where it's just all music it's either good or bad in your case it was either good or bad you know and i always i'd like to i'd kind of like to um go ahead put my own spin on that when it comes to duke duke said there is there are only two kinds of music good music and bad music and i i kind of um, paraphrase that to say uh, there are only two ki- types of music: music you like and music you don't like. Let's even you know because yeah. because good and bad is is such a you know such a, a subjective such a subjective thing that something that might be good for you might might not be good for for somebody else. And we we were just talking about that. We were just talking about Coltrane and how many people would listen to it and hear nothing but garbage, and how other people would. Would, would hear it and it, it would transform their entire lives. I mean, if you really look at it, the, the, the people that misunderstood it, mischaracterized it, didn't understand it, treated it like hate music, those were the seedlings for the, uh, the pacification of music. I mean, it really, in many ways, because music was all about feeling when you guys were around. Uh, it was about how, you, how to feel the music. And now we're really in that, in a rut in my mind, where there's still cats around but yes, you know there are. there are. But you, I mean, it it was prevalent when you were coming of age. We're, we, I got a I got a track of music to play for Brian Jackson here. Uh, we'll come back and then we'll break it down. Okay. Okay. Just thirty miles from Detroit, stands a giant power station. Each night as the city sleeps Seconds from annihilation 
But no one stopped to think about the people Or how they would survive And we almost lost Detroit This time How would we ever get Disasters on his mind And what would Karen Silkwood say to you If she was still alive That when it comes to people's safety Music on the Jake Feinberg Show brought to you by the Circle Tree Ranch, the Stereo Hospital, the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona, and Abbott Taylor Jewelers. Um, uh, and we're, we thank them for their support. All right, Mr. Jackson, what do you got for us, brother? You there, sir? Did he think that was the end of the interview? We better call him back. No, 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 I'm here, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, so go, I mean, uh, you know, we almost lost Detroit. The more things change, the more they remain the same. Uh, oh. You know, in the sense that, um, well, I wanted, you to talk, I wanted you to talk about that. That was cut in 1977 on an album called Bridges. We almost lost Detroit. But I also want you to talk about it in modern times because we're dealing with a situation in Flint, Michigan, uh, with the lead levels being yeah. at this level, I mean, where you're going to see this, it, it, this is going to have ramifications for generations, and it almost seems, well, it, it is. I mean, there's almost, ap it's either apathy or the, the response from leader, local leadership or, or, or regional leadership is, well, whatever, you know, it's just a dying community anyway. It's just a black community. And I wanted, yep. you, I wanted you to talk about uh, that song that you, that you guys put together and and uh, and just and, and what's happening in Flint now? So you know the thing is, there's one line in that in the whole song that really, if you don't get any other line in the song, the rest of it is a, is a narrative about what happened, and it's based on the book. Um, we we almost lost Detroit, um, but there is one line in the in in the in the in the song that if you don't hear any others. Just remember this. The line is, when it comes to safety, money wins out every time. That's what I, exactly. That, that, that hits, whole, that is as relevant today as it was, when was the book written? Uh, 1976, I believe. 
Yeah. Let me see. Let me yeah. see. I'm I'm checking. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you talk? And yeah. I, go ahead. I mean, I, I think okay. I want to talk about why that line. I mean, it might seem self-evident, but why is that line? Yeah. Why is that line so salient? Seventy-five, nineteen seventy-five by John G. Fuller. Yeah. So why is that? Why is that line relevant? So salient. Yeah, why is it so salient? Why is it so salient? If there's only one line, so salient. Yeah. Why is it? If there's <laughs> one line for people to get, why is it that? Yeah. One? You know because. This, this is the thing, okay? There are a lot of there are a lot of safety issues um, in our in our world in our in in our environment. Uh, we're looking at massive uh, in, environmental issues that are coming that are, have already started, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. If you pardon my pun, sure, um, that's right. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming in a, in in waves, and it's it's not going to stop. And we have people who are. Who are downgrading it and and trying to say that it that it doesn't exist? Well, do you think they really believe that? Maybe some of them. Maybe some of them do. I think that the ones who are actually involved in in creating the, the problem know better. But then ask me, do they care? No, right. because they're at an age right now where when all of this when all of this excrement hits the air conditioner, all right, they'll be gone. Forget about the fact that they have kids or that they, they have grandkids or that they'll have great-grandkids. Forget about that. To them, that is irrelevant because they will be dead and buried. Okay? But what, why? What is the purpose? I mean, why, are they, why would they do this? Because while they're alive, they're making tons and tons of money. They're living a good life based on the future of suffering of the, the whole of the of the entire global community but they don't care because right now they're having the time of their lives they're having a ball and that's and that's what matters so anybody who is making profit off of off of of illness and and off of off of death uh is they're doing it because Lines their pockets. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to say it. Um, if they were, let's put it this way: if the healthy alternatives were more profitable, they would be doing that. Exactly. I also, I wanted to. Did, could you? There's a couple of things that popped into my head. Also, we haven't gotten back to why the rap generation is so much. The messages are so much angrier. I really want yeah, you to address yeah. that. But um, were were there cats? that you know that the upstanding cats who walked that you knew in professional life that might've been in, you know, uh, oil and gas or they, that might've been in major corporations that walked away because they knew that. I mean, I, when you say that it's coming, it's just the tip of the iceberg and that it, I'm with you, man. It, it, it seems it's definitely stark. It's definitely real. And I think a lot of people know it is real, but they, they can't, they can't wrap their head around the fact that that their uh, profits, that their their ability to create this material life for themselves, is at the expense of civilization. That they could never accept that. But were there? Ca- and you know what? Yeah. And it's not just it's not just on them either. You know, because we all benefit. We all benefit from these things. We all benefit from right. from uh, from oil. 
You know what I mean? We we all benefit from from petroleum products. So I mean, it's us too. You know, we can't we can't totally blame them because if we all were just to say, hey, you know what? Enough of this. We're not dealing with this anymore. You guys figure out a way, or you're out of business. It's absolutely true. I I just I, we're were there were there any people in public life that you and Gil used to connect with, uh, either politically um, or just on a social level? Not just cats who would come to the shows, but guys who literally w- walk the walk. No, no, I can't say. <laughs> I, can't I love say it. I, I love it. All right, here's a question. Here's here, here. Clive Davis. Well, Clive, I mean, listen, I, I, and you know that dude. I mean, as as I've as I've continued to burrow in deeper and deeper to you know 500, 600 plus interviews. You know, nobody's. Well, we're all. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all. We're all human beings. Clive is not innocent either except the one thing that was consistent about Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson is that you were on Arista for many years uh yeah. it was a and and we can break that down um I just wanted to ask you very when you met Gil at uh what is it Liberty what Lincoln, was it Lincoln Lincoln, Lincoln University Lincoln University yeah. okay when could you talk about was there ever could you talk about an instance when you guys Phyllis, you were having a hard time uh, between each other, uh, faced a little bit of adversity as far as maybe egos were concerned, how you overcame it, and how it made you guys a stronger team. That's a really good question. Um, Because, you know, it's it's an issue that... uh, it didn't. It didn't come up too often. I mean, Gil. Gil had a very strong personality. He was very. He was very outspoken, and um, some people might say that that he was arrogant. And uh, you know that I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily argue. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily argue with him about that. Um, but Gil could also be um, a very kind person and a a very real person, and and just like, you know, I think that. Uh, some of the pressures of, of being Gil Scott Heron, I think, eventually kind of made him uh, resentful, resentful of, of the role that people had given him, uh, <laughs> which is something that he himself did not intentionally assume. Um, Could you give an example? So, hmm. Okay, well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a great example. When uh, um, Bush was, was elected president, mm-hmm. the second, Bush the second, was elected president. I would see people tweeting, um, George Bush is now, the second George Bush is now president. Can't wait to hear what Gil has to say about it. I mean, really? You have to wait? <laughs> you have to wait for Gil Scott Harry to say what is wrong with that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and, right. and people people would always ask him, so what do you think about the Iraq war? Or what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And the, the answers were so obvious that you don't really, you didn't really need anybody to tell you that. Nevertheless, they wanted him to say it. They wanted him to say it in his way and in the, the way that was entertaining and, and made it, he was able to put all of these, all of these things almost into the size of a, of a sound bite that you could, that you could carry around with you. And, Okay, I get it. That's a good, you know, that that's kind of good in a way. But not if you're not going to sink yourself, and not if, if that that precludes the idea of you having dialogue with other people about it. 
because that is what has to happen. We have to dialogue about these things. We have to come together about these things, not just have somebody say something really um, ironic and, and funny about it so that it amuses you, and then, and then that's it, and that's, that's all you do. Can you, could you, yeah, I mean, you go to a yeah, show and yeah. then all of a sudden, you know, you go to a show and he, you know, he breaks down everything that's going on in the world. You're like, oh yeah, man, that's <laughs> it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then plus it's funny too, you know, and then you go home and that's it. Mm. That's not going to change anything. It's going to take and me it's a minute. It's not his fault if it doesn't. Well, I mean, this is so important. Is it, I'm going to have to go back. Like, I'll, I'll listen to this three or four times and I'm going to have to wrap my head around that. That's really, that's intense and it's true. Um, but going back to you and Gil specifically, uh, early on, how did, or what is it, how did you guys become such a good team? I feel like, um, you know, that, I mean, on the surface, at least, obviously you disbanded, I think 1980, but yeah, I mean, 79, yeah. you know, but, but I mean, how did you guys work as a team so well? Could you talk about, uh, those qualities? Well, we, were, we were best friends. You know, we were best friends. We always, we were always hanging out. And um, if we weren't, if we, were, I mean, that that basically our friendship was the backdrop of, um, of of what we created, of the music, of the music that we created. I don't think we could have ever written the kind of music that we wrote together if we didn't, if we weren't hanging together all the time, and we all we weren't talking together all the time about the things that we were seeing and and amazed about uh, how similar our perspectives were on things. You know, mm. and that that was the basis of that 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 is that was the basis of of the music of the music that we did. It was it was our friendship, and it was our uh, the the conversations and and the dialogues you know that we had um, that kind of shaped the way things the way things went musically. Were you uh, was that like evident right away when you met at college? Instant. Instant. It's, well. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I mean, like, Gil played a song, and uh, I didn't think, you know, I thought, well, okay, the music is kind of cool, you know, it's, 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 it's basic, but it's, it's, I dig it. <laughs> but what really got to me was, were, were the lyrics. Right. And I was thinking, I've never heard anybody write lyrics like this before. And, um, and I played a song, and I just could see on his face that he was thinking, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> I've never, you know, this, this, this guy can play. Yeah. This guy can play. This guy, not only can he play, but he can play some stuff that I want to write music, that I want to write lyrics to. And um, that was it. I mean, you know, we were both looking for that other, that other aspect to complete our, our musical communication, our, our, the, the communication of the, the things that we wanted to say. Um, so we became friends. We became friends immediately. You know, we, we had a, there were a lot of younger, um, a lot of older guys in in school at Lincoln University who would just sit us down. And they, it was their job to like turn us on to music and um, and ideas that that we that we didn't that we didn't know about. And uh, you know, some of them ended up being our band. Um, who who is? I mean, I, them, I need to one talk. One of them in particular. Who who who? Because I, I am listen. I mean, people, of course, you know, they're like pieces of a man. Ron Carter played bass. Of course, they're going to give Ron Carter the, you know. But but your bands had some of yeah. the some of the most unsung cats. I am determined. Who, tell me some of those. Tell me the 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 cats you met at at, at Lincoln, or at least one of them, the the uh, the graybeard, so to speak. <laughs> well, Danny Bowens 
was uh was the initial bass player the the original bass player for the for the Midnight Band. That was he was and, on Pieces uh, of a Man. Or he was he was on Pieces of a Man, wasn't he? No, no. D- Danny came around uh, at uh, Winter in America. At Winter in America. Got it. So Danny Danny Bowens and Bob Adams they were both um, schoolmates of ours. Uh, they were in the they were in the same they were in the same grade as as I was I think, and uh, we went out we went off I went off because I, I didn't finish at that time I didn't you know I didn't do it yet, so I went back to New York um, after I got kicked out and then I went to, <laughs> to Baltimore <laughs> I went to Baltimore to hang out with Gil who was going to school at um at Johns Hopkins he was actually he was actually teaching there, and um, that's when we started writing a lot of the stuff. The music to um, winter in to winter in America, and we had basically conceived of it as a as a duo album, um, just him and me doing doing the songs that that we had written, and it actually a lot of it is like that. I mean, you you mentioned your daddy loved you, uh, that's basically just me and him, um, and there were a lot of other songs like that. But then there were some other songs where we felt like, you know what, this could be really a lot stronger if um, if we had some drums and, and bass. Well, you know, we we weren't Bob Thiel, and we we didn't have the <laughs> the, the money or the contacts to hire <laughs> to hire Ron Carter back or or Bernard Purdy. So we said, hey, well, who do we know to play drums and bass? It, it was our our friends at uh, at at Lincoln, who we had a, who we had had a band with called the Black and Blues. Oh boy, Bob and oh, and, uh, and Danny were. <laughs> yeah, oh man, yeah. <laughs> uh, tell, I mean, so where is Lincoln exactly? I mean, I, I picture it somewhere out in like in in the in the woods, but was it near a city? You're right. Yeah, you're right. It is. It is in the woods. It's 52 miles south of southeast of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Where and, Where uh, were the gigs for the Blacks Black and Blues Band? I, I need to know some of these. Where were you? I want to know the, some of these gigs that you guys had out there, man. Because there were. No, this was not an. This wasn't ur, This wasn't Baltimore. This wasn't like urban area. This was like woods. <laughs> <laughs> well, we played. Let me see. We, we, we didn't get a chance to play much. <laughs> really? Okay. We didn't. We didn't. We played at. You know, we played at school. Sure. You know, we did a lot of gigs at school. But our first gig, our first real gig, was in Montclair, New Jersey, at a place called the Stirrington House. And so that is a momentous. That was a momentous day wow. for for Gil, me, and and the band. It was the first time we had ever been to a club. To play, and it was pretty close to New York too. So we were, you know, we were we were stoked. Um, and we also would play at some of the, the the colleges around around town, you know, that were near that were near Lincoln, that were near Lincoln University. Which which colleges would you play? You like UPenn or where would you play? Cheney State was one of them. Sure. Um, Cheney State. Yeah, we we did get to. to you see, <laughs> would you say what? <laughs> Where? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, this is in the sticks, man. I I mean, this is mine. So you're telling because I mean, when like uh, you're telling me that Clive, uh, like you were on Arista at the time, but Clive wasn't not the, yet, not yet. With when? No, 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 no. I, I'm sorry, I jumped back to the to what you were talking about when Gil was at Johns Hopkins and you were cutting Winter in America. Yeah, uh, and that's you right. and you yeah, we did that on our own. We, we we took four thousand dollars of our of our money, oh. and um, yeah, I don't. I actually don't know how did we get four thousand dollars. Oh, <laughs> I guess it must have been. It was probably from the. It was probably from the publishing money, and uh, no, not the publishing money. The the, the writers' royalties 
from uh, sure. from the, from pieces of a man and um, and uh, um, free will. I, I mean, you have and, to you have to excuse me, but I so that but so Winter in America was a private. Uh, you cut that privately. Wasn't on Arista? Arista? No, no. Actually, the next album was was our first Arista album, but. Um, uh, yeah, thanks for setting uh, me straight. Yeah, I know that. At first, no, Winter yeah. in America. We 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 decided that we could. We figured we watched Bob Thiel sitting around in the studio smoking a pipe, <laughs> and we and you know we, we didn't know. What it. do we know? Yeah, I love. What do it. we know? Yeah. You know, we look at him and we think, you know, naively, we think, oh, is that all he does? We right. can do that. Right, right, right. right, right. Uh. <laughs> so. So we decided we could do it, you know, without the pipe. And so we went to Silver Spring, Maryland, and we found this guy named Jose, Jose Williams, who um, was an engineer, and he had a great studio there. And so we decided we, we put down roots, and we went in there, and we started cutting the album. And we then found a, a label that it just so happened to open up here in New York called Strata East, which was a musician-run label. I interviewed and, um, Stanley Cowell a couple months ago. He Stanley start- Cowell there you go. was yes, he was the founder. Absolutely. He was the founder of that. Um, and Dick Griffin. And uh, we they 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 told, they told us what the deal was, and the deal sounded really good. Basically, um, you cut the album, they put it out, and you get eighty five percent of the profit. Deal. And we thought, well, this is the kind of thing we could go for. You know, this <laughs> sounds like musicians being treated fairly. And we put it out, and the song "The Bottle" happened to be on there, uh, which changed the game. You know, it changed the game completely because, being just a small label, uh, they weren't able to get, they weren't able to meet the demand of 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 all of the places, all of the retail outlets that were that were looking to stock our album just for this one song. And so, um, this is what attracted. Clyde, you know, this is what got Clyde Davis's attention, and so you're filling in. The, you're, you're, I mean, I really, I love you're filling in the blanks. So, I mean, how did that? What did that look like? Because it wasn't like, I mean, radio stations could access. Get, I mean, actually, it must have been very hard to get all that quantity out there. That it must it have was. I mean, wow, we had, we had actually at some point. It was so overwhelming to them that we <laughs> actually started ordering um, uh, boxes to keep in our in our kitchen. So we would have stacks of, of boxes of records in our kitchen um, next to the phone on the wall. And whenever a retailer would call and say, yeah, you know, I need fifty, you know, I, I need a I need a box of a uh, of the bottle, you know, then we would we'd get their address and then we'd go and we'd send them out. Do you feel, have you, I, I'm asking this as a journalist, but also, I'm, I'm, have you been, have you received all the proper royalties from that album? Because like, even like Pieces of a Man, you mentioned Bob Thiel, who, I mean, the guy was doing impulse stuff. And as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned, he disseminated a lot of amazing music, but even Pieces, of a, pieces yeah. of a Man came out on Flying Dutchman at one point. I mean, I've, I've had presses on Flying Dutchman of that, which was an offshoot of it, of his. That's right. Uh, and so, I mean, did you, I mean, even though like at the time you're young, you must've just been laughing, having a ball that this was exploding like that. But have you, have you recouped? Have you been able to monetize all the bottle stuff that in, in a fair way, have you been treated fairly in a monetary sense? 
Well, there would have been nobody actually to to treat us fairly except us ourselves. Um, <laughs> no, but, because, yeah, but I mean, because like, we did it, right? Because we, you know, we did we did the album, wow. and you know, even though even though we were really young, we had a lot of people in our ear, a lot of older guys in our ear, telling us something that you know that now i mean almost every young person i think knows this every young artist knows this but at the time there were a lot of stories about uh about writers um who who died penniless even if they had, they had great hits so the older guys would always tell us you know what this is great you guys are playing you guys have you know you guys have songs out here right now and it's a blast must be a blast to hear them on the radio but listen to me right now this is these are the, this is the word that you need to hear publishing make sure you have your publishing okay if you have your publishing that means you own the copyrights to your music and if you own the copyrights to your music anybody that uses that music has to pay you for that privilege okay they used to drill it in our ear they used to drill it over and over to us every time they were like you know what it's great to hear your stuff on the radio but you ain't getting paid from that really you know that's not where you're going to get the most of your money and when they stop playing your music you know what? What are you going to What are you going to do then? Because this, you've chosen this as a career now. You've chosen this as a, so it's now it's kind of a job. So you have to take it, and it's and it's also your your music is is your product, and it's an investment. So make sure that you are able to use your product to to survive. Well, I, I mean, this is there's so much. Can you can you highlight some of these uh, sages that you and Gil had, even if they're not known in the mainstream? I, I guess that was my other that was my initial question that I forgot to ask you about was that I interviewed Lester Chambers from the Chambers Brothers. Uh, oh yeah, a while ago, just one of the baddest cats around, and, and one of the baddest cats around, baddest yes, cats, and and. Um, and he, you want to talk about somebody who got ripped? All, I mean, literally, uh, you know, incredible situation. Talking exactly about what happened with you guys, in a sense, different from you because he didn't. It was part of part of it had to do with his brothers, but he was talking about beatniks. That was the word for the cats that would go down to the beaches in Southern California, play drums on the beach. He was playing like yeah. the, the front of a car. He would learn rhythms. Can you talk? about some of the uh, Afro-American uh, poets and, and writers that, that, that you specifically loved and would be, maybe they were considered beatniks in the, in the, in the 50s? Well, I think, um, I think that uh, who, the, the man who was known then as Leroy Jones, uh-huh. who, who became uh, Amiri Baraka, would have definitely been considered, could have been considered one of them. And even though, for instance, Langston Hughes came from a, a slightly earlier earlier time, I'm sure that he could also be considered um, as a, you know, as a as one of the one of the founders of uh, of beat music. And and to me, my understanding of, of beat music is really that it's it's rhythmic, you know, that it's a way of uh, of of rhyming that coincides with. Uh, it coincides with with rhythms, with popular with popular rhythms and um, and dance and dance music. How about that? 
I dig. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it, how about that? I mean, that's something new, isn't it? Well, I mean, I mean, it, well, the thing is that Lester, Lester, Lester considers himself a beatnik. I mean, the guy was, he, he said that was a better word than a hippie, you know. But I mean, that was okay. what. Uh, I mean, to me, it was. It, you guys were in, a lot of cats were inspired by those that that beat generation. What they were, just that Absolutely. free expression and the Absolutely. ability to say. I mean, even what you said before, you said. And uh, those older cats were telling you, I mean, this is kind of, you said it's kind of a profession now after you, after you yeah. had that hit. Um, right. But at the same time, you, when you wrote that song, um, you guys were just trying to express the idea of what's really happening in your life and how you can live a different kind of life than the way society says you should live your life. And I yeah. just, I mean, to me, That's it's, right. it's really important. You know, uh, Brian, um, we've just been cooking for like 70 minutes here. Um, I, I, I would love to, to do part two with you in this sometime in the summer, if possible. I just, be my pleasure. Yeah, I be really, pleasure. I really had a, I really had a ball, man. Really had a ball. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. I'll get this and, and I'll get, so I'll get this. I. Yeah. I'll get this to you, uh, later today, but I, you know, I, you have no, uh, really, man. I, I, it was, uh, you know, you've had a huge impact on my generation and I think probably for many, many years to come. And, uh, my job is to disseminate some of these stories and some of these things that uh, maybe you haven't. You're doing your job very well, very well. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Bless you, brother. We'll talk soon, okay? All right, then. All right, cheers. Take care. We'll be right back with Steve Earle on The Jake Feinberg Show. You will not be able to stay home, brother. to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie May pushing that shopping.